This is Hope Illuminated. I'm Sally Spencer Thomas. The workplace is arguably one of the most cross-cutting systems we have to help people through suicidal crises. And yet most workplaces don't see this as a health and safety priority. In this conversation, I have with Dr. Gabriela Malafaya from Rio de Janeiro, Brazil. We talk about how workplace suicide prevention training can not only build skills and increase awareness among a workforce, it can actually help foster a caring culture. Come, take a listen. Welcome to the 65th episode of the Hope Illuminated Podcast, your source for the stories, science, and strategy of resilience, mental health promotion, and suicide prevention, where we live, learn, and work. I'm your host, Dr. Sally Spencer-Thomas, and I'm on a life mission to empower communities with solutions that help people overcome isolation and despair and rekindle a passion for living. Each episode, we're joined by international experts who inspire hope and offer real guidance. Welcome to the show. I'm so glad that you've joined us. Today, I'm very excited. We have an international guest calling in from Rio de Janeiro, Brazil, uh, Dr. Gabriela Maifaya. And we're gonna be talking about workplace suicide prevention training. Now, as many of you who know me know, this has been a huge area of passion for me for a long period of time. Uh, shortly after my brother Carson died, my family and our and his friends, we looked for gap-filling ways to prevent what happened to Carson from happening to other people. And one of the things we noticed is that majority of people had been working right before their suicide death, or they had just been released from work, or they had an immediate family member that was working. And yet very few, hardly any workplaces were investing in suicide prevention specific work to help mitigate these issues. And that seemed like a really important gap to fill. So in 2007, another psychologist and I, Rick Ginsburg, we launched a brand new training called Working Minds. And we were so excited. Like we looked around the world at who was doing any work in this space and there was a little bit happening in Canada and Australia, but very little. So we thought we would make an important gap-filling effort. And we were so excited. We're like, yay, suicide prevention training for the workplace. But nobody cared. And it was really disappointing to put so much effort into what we knew could potentially be life-saving training and to have workplaces turn to us and say, this is a medical issue. This is not a workplace issue. And we would say back, but... Most people who die by suicide, at least in the U.S., have never stepped foot in a mental health provider. They're not reaching out, but they're working. They're here. And you can make a difference. Well, it fell on deaf ears for a long period of time until a less than a decade ago when we started to have data that showed that different industries had higher risk. And we also had stories from early adopters who were doing trainings like what we'll be talking about today. And we were seeing a positive impact in their work culture, in productivity and presenteeism and absenteeism, and could really make the case for why this was so important in the workplace. 
So I'm thrilled to introduce Gabriella. We met through the International Association of Suicide Prevention a couple of years ago and immediately kind of connected because we both had such passion around this issue of workplace suicide prevention. We have presented together on different symposia through the World Congress of Suicide Prevention, most recently in Derry, Ireland. And we also work together on United Suicide Survivors International. And she's been a consultant and advisor for that organization in helping us shape our storytelling courses. She's also been on our Twitter chats. And so I'm so thrilled to have her here. She's a psychologist who's been working in the oil and gas industry for the past nine years. Her main field of activity is workers' health, especially as focused on mental health in the workplace. She's got a postgraduate degree in people's management, so she really brings together both the kind of psychology as well as human management to her work. And she's a mental health advocate with great expertise in employee assistance programs, workplace training, organizational psychology, mental health promotion, and suicide prevention, including intervention and postvention activities. Gabriella, I'm so excited that you're here. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you so much for the introduction. Thank you so much for inviting me to be here. It's an honor to be here. And I'm really pleased to, to be sharing a little bit of my experience and of what I do here. It's and great. I think it's going to be great. Yes, it's really great. And it's so exciting because I think, you know, a lot of times when we go to these international conferences, the usual players show up of, you know, Europe and Australia, Canada and the U.S. So we have far fewer representatives from South America in our international conversation. So you bring a lot to this. And I'm really grateful you said yes when I asked. So let's start with what got you into this work. Tell us a little bit about your backstory and how you find yourself doing this work of suicide prevention and mental health promotion in the workplace. Sometimes when I think about why I chose psychology, I don't quite remember. But when I look to my story, I can find a few specific moments and some really close friends or family members who I'm related to. And a few stories that I think had shaped my story and, and made me go to psychology and, and made me end going to workers' health. So when I was in high school, and we have to remember now, I'm going to, to show a, a little bit of, about my age. Uh, we didn't have internet or mobile. So me and my friends and I used to share letters in the intervals of the classes so one specific day a friend came to me with a letter we used to do this almost every day and when I started reading she said in the, the night before she she really thought about dying she really thought about uh, suicide she had suicidal ideation so and I was reading that that letter and I thought oh my god what shall I, I what shall I do with this and I didn't, I couldn't Google it up. I didn't have um, no one to ask. And I felt I had to, to be empathic with her. I felt I had to, to go and talk to her. And I had to, to be there for her. So I, I, uh, I knew, I, now I know I should have done much more, but th that was, was what I felt uh, like doing so. Yeah, I think you, you had some good instincts there. So I think maybe you had that natural empathic tendency, but your 
experience yeah. of like, I don't, I don't know where to turn. I don't know who to ask, even though at the fingertips of all our devices, we have answers for that. People still find themselves kind of in this deer in the headlights moment. Like this seems so daunting. I don't know who to trust. I don't know where to go. That, that experience is still there for a lot of yeah. people. Yes. Yeah. And I, and I guess I got it right because she opened up and she could talk about it. And she, in the end she said, Oh, I, I feel so much better now. And I said, wow, I, I did something. I, I, it's I powerful. A, uh, yes, it, it was powerful. Especially and as a high then, school student to feel that kind of impact on somebody who's suffering. Yeah. Yes. And then I have someone in my family, a uh, really loved one who is always dealing with this. And I'm the trusted one. So this person always comes to me, talks with me. And it's, it's been like this since we were teenagers. So, and I think I've, I've always been in this place. And uh, it, then I chose psychology in the first year. Another friend came to me and I'm, I'm only saying this to you. You're the only one who I trust. So, and okay. So I, I ended undergraduation and uh, was looking for a job and I had this opportunity to work with workers health it wasn't something I planned it just came up and I simply loved it I felt it was the the chance to do really make a difference in the workplace not to do an admin, administrative task or something that maybe wouldn't be uh, too powerful for me wouldn't move me so much and doing this I, I feel like I can do something really powerful inside the company I can change people's lives and we can do something better because well we spend a lot of our time inside the company mm -hmm. uh, we have to do this and we it, it's better if the company can brings us health and not suffering and not so that that's what I, I invest in Yes. And you've made your way into a very large industry and a very large company. And so your potential for impact in this space is massive. When you think about it, it's not just the workers, it's their family members, it's their communities that the tools that you give them spread beyond the workplace. So well done, you know, to take, you know, your, your skills of empathy and noticing and being trustworthy to then have this big footprint of an impact throughout a very large sector. Yeah. That's not an easy thing as someone who's trying to, you know, been working in a similar lane for a long time. It's hard to make those inroads. So and the fact that you've been doing it for nine years just speaks volumes. Talk a little bit about the pathway into oil and gas in particular, because again, it's a, it's a big, you know, it's a big industry. There's a lot of volatility in the oil and gas industry. There's a lot of focus on profit and productivity and risk and all of these things. Um, it's a hard nut to crack in a lot of ways. And yet you've been doing it for almost a decade. Talk a little bit about that pathway. Uh, yes, I ended in this industry because it was uh, a great job. As I said, th this opportunity came to me and I said, okay, it's a, it's a good company, something, a, a place where I wanted to work for a long time. and. Yes, it's, it's quite challenging because there's a lot of pressure, a lot of pressure for production. If production stops one day, it's million, millions and millions lost. And this is something that 
challenges, operational professionals, health professionals, safety workers, and as well as it's challenging, it also gives us the opportunity to do something, to make a difference. Because what I notice is that when we do any kind of training or any kind of activity with people in the administrative buildings, they are okay, we have a lot of this, but when we go to the field, when we, we go to operational areas, they don't have this much opportunity to, to talk about these kinds of things, to, to think about what is to be a worker, what is to, to be maybe suffering from a mental illness. We have the chance to, to bring something to them and it, it's fantastic. It, it's really something we can make an impact on them because they have their shifts and hours, uh, the, lots of pressure in work. And so it's hard to, to get them out of work to, to stay for a morning, for example, to, for a training or something. So they are always uh, really grateful to, to be doing this and to be sharing their uh, experience, their thoughts and, and how, how things happens, ha- happen there. Yeah, you brought up a couple of really good points. I just want to make sure to underscore. One is when you have an industry or an occupation where time is literally money, there's just this unrelenting pressure and people are unlikely to make extra time to do things that are just good for them. (laughs) You know, it's the urgent versus the important balance, right? So one of the tips you just relayed there is, you know, don't create a training over in headquarters somewhere and think people are going to make time to make their way over there. Or if they're mandated, they're mad because they're not making money, you know, go to where the people are. And there's creative ways to do trainings that fit into a very busy schedule. I love the idea and I'm not sure it's the same in Brazil, but the idea of the toolbox talks, it's a regular dose of a skill building or an awareness activity that's already built into health and safety culture. So for five to 10 minutes before every shift, you know, there's a stretch and flex. And today we're going to talk about depression or today we're going to talk about this resource or somebody's going to tell a story about how they came through a really hard time. So I think that's a really important takeaway. These trainings don't have to be massive full day in services where you take your whole shift offline and they're probably more effective as small doses over time. The second thing that I heard that you say was that you really start from a place of validation, that these are workers that are very stressed. They are really working hard in dangerous situations. It's unrelenting. There's a lot of risk involved. And to just start from a place of acknowledging that rather than coming in and saying, you broken people, we're here to fix you, ta-da, the psychologists are here. It's no, you are amazing. You are heroic to do this work. Our country, uh, our people, our our world depends on you. You're making a great sacrifice. You're going through a lot of stress and we're we're here to make sure that you're you're your best for the long haul of this. And, And kind of reframing it that way, I think also is a really important strategy for people. And then you can weave in and some of you may also be experiencing different forms of an impairment from depression, anxiety, trauma, mm-hmm. addiction, that just compounds the fact of how heroic you are because you're also carrying all of these other things with you. Super. So, so when you get up in the morning, kind of what's your vision of like, what stirs your heart to do this work? Would, is there a story of, have you seen a particular impact with a work crew or without disclosing any identifiable information, a, a person that you realize that these trainings really had an impact on them or their families? Well, I guess it's always 
remarkable when people take these moments to share something they lived, something about their history. And there was one time in particular, I was with a colleague and we traveled for three or four days and we had uh, lots of trainings to, to do. The, the schedule was really tough, really tight, sorry. And um, we, we had to wake up really early to get to this place. It, it was really far to, to, to get there. So at six, the car should get us. And uh, there was any problem, uh, the car uh, was late and it made us get even later to the, to the place. So we had to start at eight, we, get there, we got there like 10 in the morning. And again, operational people, we have to stay with them uh, for around two or three hours. But we had a leader who really, really sponsored the, this training. And the, the, uh, all the, the classes we, we had, it, it was really interesting and people loved it. It was a moment of reflection, self-reflection and sharing and thinking about uh, what they are doing, how they feel doing that. So. And this leader said to everybody, okay, we are going to stay in the room and wait for them. This is the priority. And because usually, okay, it's late, so I'll, I'll go there. I'll just get into that meeting and then I, I get back and it, it never works out. So, and we, when we got there, people were waiting and we could uh, go through what was planned. And what was really surprising is that um, in the middle of the training, during the training, this leader uh, started sharing a personal experience. He had um, struggled, struggled, struggled with depression. And, and he shared about how was this, how, uh, how hard it was, and how important it was to, to be to receive treatment and how he could uh, get help from the company also. So it was really, really powerful. So when we see things like this happening, we see that we are on the right way. Mm -hmm. We are doing something that really matters. Yeah. So again, a couple of gems in there. One is this idea of sharing. So a lot of times trainings are very statistic oriented, warning signs, risk factors, Here's the three steps and that kind of thing. And I have also found that you, if you give people safe space, you put up some parameters and it's voluntary, but if you give people a safe space to share, they will. And this is often incredibly surprising to the companies. They're like, oh, you'll never get the fill in the blank. The you know, construction workers, lawyers, doctors, firefighters, you'll never get them to talk about this. I'm like, oh yes, we will. <laughs> They want to talk, actually. They want to have that camaraderie of the shared experience of the trauma or, um, you know, their concerns about their kids or living with depression. They're, they are actually often quite proud of the fact that they've fought these very difficult things and they've learned some things from it and they don't want others to suffer in the same way they did. And that's really good stuff. Um, so with some parameters and, uh, and, and a bold person, just one, it usually is, you can get really powerful, brief, they don't have to dominate the training, but brief 
shares that really then make the training super relevant. And people are like, oh, this really is about us. It's about, you know, me. It's about the people that I work with every day. Um, mm -hmm. The other thing that you brought up, which is for me, the absolute secret sauce of making not just a training, but a whole workplace suicide prevention program effective is to have that leader, that one leader who says, this is a priority. This matters to me. And it matters to me because I've lived through it. When you find that leader, like, whoo, work is done. They're going to carry this thing all the way through. And the fact that they, you know, had their team, which again was money by the minute, sitting there for two extra hours waiting for this was in a huge model, a demonstration of how important this is. So that's a great story, a great story to share. Um, let's turn now a little bit to why the workplace? Like, why does this matter? What, is, what does our research say? This seems like a foreign concept still to a lot of folks. And if they're doing anything at all in the space, it's more, I would say, like workplace wellness light, like stress management or I don't know. It's very light, you know, and, they, and then sometimes they feel that they've checked the box on addressing mental health and suicide in the workplace. Um, what does the science tell us about why, why we should be doing this? Uh, well, um, most of the people who suffer from a mental illness or maybe it's in suicide despair is in a working age. So from 18 to 60, 65 years old. And so it makes sense to, to use this space because uh, it's a space, uh, it's a place where you, uh, you can enhance the sense of uh, belongingness, the sense of, well, I I'm doing something useful for the society. And if you do it right, if you have a place that, um, that can give this to this person, so uh, if, if the worker can be recognized uh, for what he's doing, can be heard, can use their creativity, so you can uh, make a workplace uh, much healthier and much a better place. So why do why invest in uh, workplace suicide prevention trainings? Well, it, first it, it makes sense because creating a culture of health and safety awareness is both humane and it's also good for business. Well, and um, second, because the money spent on mental health awareness and suicide prevention as well, saves much for, more for the company as it's, the company will spend much less on absenteeism, presenteeism, and the consequences of suicide events. So this is important to, to, to make clear inside the company that we are not doing something only focused on the, that employee. We are doing something that it's good for the employee and it's also good for business. This must be clear because we need uh, the senior management to sponsor us. We need uh, people to believe that this is important. This is going to make a difference, not only uh, for people, but also for the whole company. The company will gain in productivity, will gain in uh, workers' uh, satisfaction, commitment. So those are really good for business. Mm -hmm. I just want to um, kind of connect that to where we're sitting now, right? For most of the world, we're in economic uncertainty, we're in health crisis, we've got a lot of things going on. And I think sometimes when 
leaders find or you know decision makers find themselves in this place of uncertainty they scale back right and they get tight uh, and they eliminate anything they consider to be fluff and so a program like this could be seen as that well we're doing that because it's a nice thing to do but it's not central to our mission uh, however we have found that some companies that actually survive and thrive through these crises are the ones that increase things like this during crisis not get rid of them and the reason why that helps is because the workers say oh my gosh you really care about us and the mm. morale stays high or high as it can be during a crisis because the leaders are demonstrating increased resources, increased attention around well-being, checking in, how are you doing? What do you need? And seeing it as central, not as fluff. Uh, so again, I think your experiences, um, finding these kinds of leaders who get that, understand that's not just a return on investment for day-to-day -day productivity, it is, but it's also especially helpful during crises to help, to help workers stay the course, you know, work their best during a difficult time, stay focused on the mission, uh, and feel connected, that sense of belongingness that you talked about. Um, I'll, I'll throw into the show notes some, some articles about how important that is. Uh, Thomas Joyner's work on belongingness and purpose and why the work can contribute to that so much when it's working well. What are other things that, that you've noticed in, in the research around why training might be the way to go for workplaces or are there certain industries that rise to the top that should be really focused on this? Uh, yes, uh, training is um, a really effective way to, to uh, build changing in culture. So, okay, we have to raise awareness, we have uh, to fight stigma, but it's not only that. We have to, to do something uh, much bigger. We have to uh, change the, the cooperative culture. So um, workplace suicide prevention training is, uh, and first we have to, to keep in mind that it's not one event. You not just go there, do one training and that's done. It, it's a process. So you, you are always uh, bringing it up, always um, uh, uh, putting this into practice, into the day-to-day -day, um, uh, history of the company. So we are, by workplace suicide prevention training, we can, uh, we can uh, prepare leaders and workers and employees to deal with uh, when someone is in despair, someone is not well, and, and people feel confidence, confident to do something. Leaders are uh, really important. They play a really important role in this because they they are uh, like a model to their team. So how how they deal with those situations, how they they talk about it, and it, it get, gives the tone to the team to their team uh, on how to okay th this is important. This is really important for us. This is really important for the company. And also colleagues, because if you uh, create a, an environment and uh, a helpful environment, a pleasant environment, and if you uh, have people who know, okay, I think it, I think something's not right, something's not good, and those people uh, knowing where to to find help, this is also really important. So this is, I, I think, this is the most meaningful 
and, and as I said, it, it's also good for business because uh, there's a study that says that for every dollar spent in uh, suicide prevention, you, the every dollar invested into the treatment and support of mental health disorders and also suicide preventions see a return of four dollars four dollars in improved health and productivity so uh, it's it's really something to to talk about inside the company it's really something to to be sharing here in my country um, in brazil we have the ENSS it's the social security uh, so when someone is not working, there's a cost. Uh, that, there's this cost because he's at home in a sick leave. So there's uh, some data from the period of 2012 until 2016. And the economic impact of mental health absences in terms of benefits paid for these people is estimated in 8 billion reais. It's a lot. It's kind of 15 million dollars. Wow. <laughs> so it's it's really something. And so investing in this workplace suicide prevention is a, a good way to access people. Uh, it's, it's something to, to well, it's something that can be powerful for the company. Yeah. Yeah, um, we talk about, you know, that's just one metric, right? The leave time, the, you know, the worker has to take time off to, um, to address these health issues. But there's also all, the, all kinds of other hidden costs of, um, you know, when you, I know it was true for me, when many people are in the throes of depression or a very significant anxiety experience or trauma or are fighting addiction, uh, it, it's distracting. You're, 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 your brain is not functioning optimally. And when you're operating heavy machinery, when you're trying to make quick decisions, it's, it's hard. So, you know, sometimes these are also showing up in not just productivity, but safety issues or interpersonal issues that are really hard to measure, but most definitely impact uh, a workplace's overall performance. I think we could all agree that, well, most, most of us agree most days that our workers' well-being goes way beyond the return on investment. Uh, but when you're a decision maker trying to figure out how to allocate resources to improve the workforce, this is something that you consider. So it is important to have those data and for us to continue to measure that. Um, I think another important point that has really helped in the U.S. move things along is looking at different industry risks. And our CDC data that's now come out every other year ranking industry by suicide rate has really been an important leveraging point for a lot of our industries. And um, this last report that came out, uh, extraction was at the top, you know, and these are huge industries that employ tons mm -hmm. of people in very challenging conditions so that, you know, we can show the data, say, this is impacting your workforce, whether you mm -hmm. know it or not, you have people operating your, you know, work all the days that are struggling. They're fighting to stay here. And you have a really important opportunity to, to um, help them connect to those right resources. Um, and this is just the death data. I should also emphasize that other forms of suicidal behavior are also impacting workforces, um, thoughts, attempts, caregiving. Uh, and so we're also starting to see other industries that maybe have more of those um, experiences like the service industry and so forth also starting to come forward saying, 
we need help as well. Have you found the same thing in South America that some of those, that death data or those public health data are also now capturing some industry attention about, oh, now we get it. We get our, our role here. Well, this is a weakness we have. We don't have much data mm. uh, relating to the types of industry. And so we don't have this data in my country and I, I'm not aware of this, this data in South America. But we know that it happens. Um, we have our experience and I'm sure it's um, the same in many other companies and the whole industry because it's a uh, quite risky work. Uh, people stay uh, in the field for many, many days. Mm. So there is all this distance from family and this vulnerability. So um, we know that this is uh, quite an important issue. And as you said, it's not only the, the money spent uh, and the, it's also um, the impact on people. So if someone is suffering, I, I'm impacted. I'm, I'm not uh, concentrated in what I'm doing in work because I'm worried. I'll talk with this person. Oh, it, it will uh, take some time. And it's something that if, if we can do this in a, an effective way, it's much better for everyone. It's much better for this person who is suffering, who may be, uh, who may receive the. This may be the workplace. May be the only place that she or he can uh, receive this help. So, uh, peer peer support is quite uh, important, and it, it has a. Uh, it's really meaningful so because I think give, it gives the person the sense of, well, he's just like me and he's going through something like this. It could be me. So uh, let's deal with this together. Let's find help. Let's go to the uh, health area and, and get some help for you. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I want to go also go back to the comments you made about how a training program really helps drive culture. Uh, on one level, just the symbolism of it, right? We, we as a company are willing to invest our time and our money to make sure that you are thriving in this space and that you know what to do if you or someone else is not. The sim symbolism of that is very powerful. Uh, and then you also start to generate all these conversations after the training, before the training that then percolate out. It's another way that leaders can also recognize and reward workers who are really invested in getting more training or doing this at a higher level, like a peer support level. And I'm so excited to see this idea of peer support really taking off within industry, within different types of uh, work sectors and different types of job settings, because by the time HR or a high level supervisor finds out that there's a problem, it's been festering for a really mm -hmm. long time. The person most likely to catch things early, have compassionate conversations, um, empower somebody to take care of themselves is the person who's working right next to you. Uh, and to be able to cultivate this culture of peer support through training, through a selection and nomination process and supervision, it's not just something you do on the fly, but um, it, when, when you have that and this culture of, I've got your back, just like you'd have mine. We, want, we look out for each other. That's what we do here. That's the kind of culture you want to drive. 
in an, in an organization, especially one that has a lot of concerns around, you know, safety and accountability and all of that. You don't want a culture where people are shoving things under the rug. You want a culture where people are addressing them proactively. Uh, so talk a little bit more about at that peer support level, um, what is the role of training there? Uh, the role of training is to empower people to do this. Uh, people need to know uh, what are the signs, what they should pay attention to. And, okay, I, I see the signs. I see that this person is at risk. So what can I do? Uh, how do I uh, start, start a conversation? What should I say? Uh, people sometimes asks us uh, what should I say I, I don't know I don't know how to deal with this so uh, even these basics it, it's really important to to empower people to to feel confident to do that so they they should know what to do they should know where they can go to to get any further orientation they should know uh, what resources the company has to have to offer uh, to them and also what resources they can find outside the company because well, maybe the person doesn't want to open up uh, inside the company is afraid of something it, it happens so uh, where we can find any helpful uh, resources outside the company uh, what's the brazilian lifeline and sometimes people don't know that and this is I think it's the uh, really important role of um, this kind of gatekeeper training, peer support training. There are some really interesting initiatives around this. So it's uh, sometimes um, there's, there are some initiatives that um, create specific people, specific workers who wear a badge or something and people know, okay, that, that, that person is someone, it's, it's not a, he's not a health professional, he's not someone, a psychologist, or he's a worker just like, just like me, but he's someone who I know he's going to help me. So I can go, I, I can uh, feel safe talking with this person. So it's, a, it's a, also a great strategy. Yes, great. So let me kind of summarize some of these key components to successful training. So um, one is kind of leadership, championing it, identifying this as a priority. Another is slow drip over time, go to where the workers are. A goal of the training is really to kind of break through the, the taboo of talking about these things um, and doing that by having some lived experience sharing. Um, and our goal is to really increase that confidence and competence. So if I'm concerned at least somebody in the community is gonna raise their hand and say, I see you, I see that you're suffering, or maybe I just know, maybe you don't look any different, but I know you're going through a divorce, your parents are really sick, you just you know, got furloughed, I know you have a lot of stress that you're carrying, so I have confidence and competence to, to reach out and say something that I am pretty sure is gonna open the door to a bigger conversation. Um, you also brought, brought up the importance of that training bring into the conversation, um, and I would say make come to life the resources and what recovery looks like. So when possible, I really encourage the workplaces to bring their employee assistance professional to a brown bag lunch or onto a toolbox talk so people can see the person and ask questions or just notice like they just look like a human being just like anybody else. 
uh, or have someone, you know, tell a story about how they use the resource and this is why it was effective. Any way that we can bring recovery and resources to life, they don't seem so foreign anymore. Are there other components of uh, kind of the strategy of building a training program that you would recommend or that you've seen be really effective? Uh, I think uh, one com important component is to relate what you are doing to the organizational goals. And it's also important to relate, uh, to connect what uh, you're doing, uh, the uh, workplace suicide prevention training with safety priorities of the company. So it's important to, to, to show that it's not uh, an isolated action. It's all connected. It's about uh, avoiding accidents. It's about taking care of people. It's about productivity. It's all connected. And it's also important for the company. It's also important for business. So sometimes um, it's good to show some figures not too much. It, it, it's quite hard to, to find this because if you only focus on figures and numbers, especially managers will only uh, pay attention to that and stick to that because it's a, a commonplace. So, but not showing it, it at all. Uh, also, okay, but where are we in this? Uh, how is our company doing? So it's important to show a little bit, okay, we are uh, aligned with what's happening in the country or we are worse than what's happening in the country or in the industry, if you have this data. So it's important to show a little bit of this and, and people, oh God, this is important. This is something we have to really uh, dig in and pay attention. Mm, let's, let's talk a little bit more about that too, because I, I think the use of data in training is essential, but also you need to be strategic about it. And so I liked a couple of things that you said there. One is, you know, we need to make the case for why this matters. And so showing some data, industry data or geography data, like here's what's happening in Colorado where I'm from, or here's what's happening in Rio de Janeiro. Like these things are happening in our communities. These things are happening in our industries. Um, and I would also say there's a lot more buy-in for any type of programmatic Im implementation if you do some listening on the front end. So tapping the pulse of the company and just doing surveys and focus groups and in-depth interviews and saying, how's it going out there? Um, have you used the resources? Have you helped somebody else? Have you yourself experienced this, that, or the other thing? And then feeding that direct data back in its aggregate to the company saying, you know, 97% of your people said they would help someone who was experiencing suicidal thoughts that's amazing. Like that, that's something that probably the worker who's struggling with the suicidal thoughts doesn't really appreciate that the coworkers say that they'll be there for you. Like positioning the data, not just the scary data of how many people have thought about suicide in the last year or how many people have been impacted by suicide death. Those numbers are pretty shocking when we feed them back. People don't realize that that's true for a lot of people, but also the positive data. How many people have reached out? How many people are in recovery? How many people, you know, have helped a friend. Those are really positive data that we could also share to reflect a culture of caring and a, and a, and a workforce that is invested in their emotional well-being. So all of these pieces of data, um, and again, you, you, you can overdo it. Too much data um, doesn't drive that personal engagement, but making the case, I think, is an important thing to do in the training. Are there other components? 
Yes, uh, and also a good good strategy to do that is uh, share a successful case. Of course, mm. you change data, you uh, people won't be able to identify, but share. Uh, okay, well, we we were in touch with this um, employee. He was struggling, and we did this, and the company helped like this. So uh, it's it's quite powerful for managers to see, okay, well, if, if I have to deal with any situation like that, I know what to do. I know that there's something really effective to do and I can help, can, can, can get help from inside the company. So case studies, they are quite, quite a good idea as well. So mm. I think it's important to prioritize brief action oriented uh, trainings and also um, self-reflective training agendas. So the training must engage the trainees in practical practical exercises and activities such as case studies, as I said, or maybe group discussions. Uh, those are good uh, ways to do this and not too long uh, trainings. As you said, uh, some sometimes a toolbox, uh, 15 minutes you can talk about it, you can uh, do a quite good approach with people and you don't take too much of their, their time. If you, okay, if you have more resources, more time, great, a two hour training will be fantastic. So yeah, great. I think the, 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 oh, emphasis, the emphasis of that last part, it was really important that it can't just be a passive, somebody talking at you for however long, really engaging people is really important. And so I love your, like, here's a case study, what would you do? Or different types of tabletop exercises. Um, and I think probably the most important activity, uh, engagement activity is practicing some of these skills. I know when, when we do our evaluation of our trainings and we say, what was the most important part? That always rises to the top. Uh, when we have people practice these compassionate conversations asking a direct question about suicide, listening with empathy, uh, and kind of coming alongside someone as a collaborative partner to then enroll them in building out a safety net, right? All of these steps require practice. And if you just get it passively, you're like, oh yeah, I got that. And then you get into a role play or a practice session and you're like, it's hard. It's harder than you think to say those words or to you know, be only thinking about the next best question rather than being really present with the person. So I think that behavioral rehearsal is what we call it. You know, that practice of um, just like it would be for CPR. You know, it feels a lot different to get on top of the dummy and do those chest compressions than it is just to see a slide about it. So that practice makes it far more memorable in the future. You can also work through some anxiety in a role play session so that you build up that confidence when you go forward and do it real. Um, so all of these components, now a practice type of training would take longer than 15 minutes. This would be more like the two hour type yeah. of training, but it would be really helpful, I think, especially for that peer level, that advanced peer level um, to, to go through something like that. Oh, I wanted to pick up on another thing you said that is super important, and that's the external facing symbol of I'm a trustworthy person. You talked about some kind of sticker on a hard hat. Um, I know other people put little dots on their name badges, or they have little different t-shirts that they wear, little things outside their office. So they're outward facing symbols. So you don't have to go around and ask a hundred people, have you been trained? Are you trustworthy? 
people won't do that, but I see your badge and I know by you having that badge on whatever, your helmet, your name tag, your door, that you care about this and that you've had some training and that you're a peer like me. Uh, so that's a really also, and it's very rewarding, I think, for the employees who've gone through the training to say, yes, I, I've earned this badge. Um, and that really helps them feel a sense of honor in this work. So that was a really good tip too. Um, anything else before we kind of go into to some wrap up? Uh, yes, uh, I think um, it's uh, one of the most important things to do is is uh, to get people to know where they can really find help. This is uh, I said before, and I'm saying again. It's uh, it's really important that people feel confident about uh, the help that they can find inside the company. They, uh, they must uh, feel safe to disclosure this inside the company. Sometimes I receive people um, who were afraid, who was afraid, who was, oh God, how, how maybe this can be bad for me. My manager will, will uh, be aware that I'm, I'm here and it, it's important to build this um, confidence, this um, make this people, this person feel safe by doing this. So, and another uh, important thing is that um, it's important to know really well the culture of the company, because if you're just an outsider and you bring a, a, a whole package, uh, okay, this is the same package, every company, every place, every industry, it's not going to work. Uh, people won't buy it. People won't accept what you're doing. You have to talk their language. You have to understand uh, really well what they are, uh, what, what, what are the forces inside the company, what probably they are struggling with, what's the context of that special, uh, that specific company. So this is really, it, it makes a difference. If it's just a, a, a training that you buy a, a closed package, probably it's not going to be really suitable. That's uh, for my experience. Yeah, I think there's, um, there's a delicate tension there, right? Because uh, a 15 minute online, I can buy 2000 licenses and distribute out to everybody, right? That's a scalable option for companies. And it's not the worst thing, right? Especially mm -hmm. if you want to move quickly. Um, but mostly what I hear from those experiences is that the context is lost on the employee. They're like, why are we doing this? What is this? And, and I hear they, they do it, they pencil with it. They're like, let me just get through this. Click, 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 click. You know, like there's no personal investment in it. Um, so that on one hand is very scalable, affordable and fast but it misses the mark in a lot of ways. The other way, which is small groups, lots of conversation, lots of sharing, lots of customization and cultural relevance, that's the deep role. That's more costly, it's slower, but it's much more sticky. So somewhere in the middle there, or maybe a balance of both, you know, um, yeah. is, is probably the right answer for a, um, people thinking about a strategy around training for this. Yes, I, I would say that because um, we know that it's really expensive, especially if the company is not uh, in just one place, it's spread it 
uh, all over the country or maybe in, in different countries. So, but it's possible to find the, the mix of it. Maybe it's something uh, specific package, but you insert uh, specific, specific things, or maybe you have someone from inside the company speaking, uh, presenting the training. It can be online, it can be maybe half uh, something in the middle, some uh, small part presential if possible, and uh, most of it uh, online training. Because what I think it's important is, is to do something. If you maybe don't have the, the, the amount of resources you, you need, you wanted to have, but okay, let's just start, let's do what's possible with what we have, what's with the resources we have. So I think I agree with, with you. It's uh, something in the middle we have to find. Great. All right. Well, let me kind of um, go back and do a recap of some of the themes and highlights we talked about, and then I'll come back to you for some final thoughts. So we're talking today with Gabriela Manfaya from Rio de Janeiro, Brazil, about workplace suicide prevention. And even though my country, your country, were fairly different, we found some universal truths or universal best practices that I think can help all kinds of industries, all kinds of workplaces in different countries about how to do workplace suicide prevention and mental health promotion. And we started off with your story, and I think it's true for many people that end up in this space that you find that you have an interest in people and an interest in helping and uh, become that trustworthy source and then want to empower others to do that. And so within our companies, there are probably people like you who, who have maybe a little bit more of that empathic uh, ability and also some lived experience that are hungry to help other people. And rather than um, see that as a quote unquote soft skill, we should really be capitalizing on what they're bringing to help the workforce. We talked about how to set up a, a workplace training program and really at the heart of that is leadership buy-in. So as you're doing this work, it's important to figure out who those leaders are that can be those champions that can boldly say, this matters here, it matters to our mission, it matters to me. And if they can share even the smallest slice of a lived experience story, the work goes so much faster. We talked about the importance of that lived experience piece within training and you know, with parameters where people feel safe, it really drives the point home that this happens here. It's not some other people. It's not some other group. This happens to us. It happens to our families. It happens in our communities. And it's the right thing to do is to uh, give us the skill sets and the resources to make a difference so people don't suffer. We talked about the many ways that training can show up from a five to 10 minute toolbox talk to you know, a, a multiple day highly rigorously involved manager training or formal peer support training, and then all the things in between. And that, when we, when we consult with companies, we're really looking for helping people think through, this is not just a one and done thing. This is something that needs to follow people over the course of their career, um, show up in different types of roles, whether it's safety, HR, manager, um, all kinds of different places and spaces. So it just becomes embedded into the, the culture which was a big part of our conversation, that this does drive culture. It's not just about a skill set. It's about what's important and what we value and what we recognize and reward, whether it's um, by, by celebrating recovery or by the badges and outward symbols of people who've invested and done some work in this space. 
that those kinds of things really drive a caring culture that when you are successful in that, all kinds of stuff comes together. Um, productivity goes up, morale goes up, retention goes up, safety is improved. Um, people feel good, not just about serving a mission, but being part of a community that really looks out for one another. So Gabriella, I have loved this conversation. Of course, you know, like this is one of my favorite things to talk about. Um, it's also really exciting to me to hear the work that you're doing in a very different part of the world and having some similar experiences. Um, bravo, brava, um, for having such success in, in a pretty difficult industry to, to make inroads in. It's, it's a stoic, um, you know, hard driving industry that, you know, many would say they don't have time for this kind of thing, but you have made it a, a deep part of their work and, and how they're um, supporting their workers. So well done. Thank you. Uh, and do, what are your, some final thoughts? Uh, yes. Um, Cause sometimes we have uh, a leader, especially in the health uh, sector, the health area, and it's easier, it's much, a leader who supports it. So it's much easier to do this. But sometimes maybe it's not the, the best momentum of the company. It's uh, uh, the sponsor, we don't have the, the best sponsors. But I think what uh, really moves me is that I know I work with people who have the same passion. So what I would say as uh, maybe a final thought is um, build this network of the people who have this passion, who, who are really touched about these questions, these uh, issues, and who really wants to make the difference because maybe you don't have the, the best structure to do this. You don't have maybe not the, the, the best uh, time and money uh, from the company, but you can build a network in between. And in between the, the, the most uh, impacting works maybe I've done were sometimes in between. And, and there was this momentum, okay, I'll talk with that person. I know she will uh, get into this with me and I, I know it's going to be huge. And let's do, let's make it happen. And, and when we do this, when we are really moved we can get um, managers' attention and things will, will really go. We have to believe uh, in our mission, in what we do and uh, how, how we can impact people's lives. I think this is the, the most exciting mm. thing about this. Yes, I, that is a, an extremely good point. Sometimes we can't wait for leadership to get on board. And if a certain pocket or a certain group of workers who've been very affected get what I call like fire in the belly around this, they can make yeah. amazing change. I saw this with the Denver Fire Department. They lost a beloved captain. There was, I don't know, 40 of them that were very close to this captain that were just devastated by his death and they would not stop. They, they said, we're not going to stop until we figure out some things to do here. And they persisted for months because they were so passionate about this. And ultimately, you know, the Denver Fire Department in many ways has be, now become a leading agency on how to do suicide prevention and mental health promotion in first responder communities. And because it was this core group of people that just would not quit. So yes, you don't always have to, and their leader got involved fairly quickly. I'm not saying that he didn't, but um, sometimes it's not the case that you can get the attention of the higher echelon folks, but 
that grassroots advocacy can make a huge difference, sometimes just in their, in their level or in their area of work, which is a great start, but sometimes they do catch the attention of the people higher up and can eventually change policy or get better resources or you know, just change the culture. So that's a, a very exciting thing to happen from people who've had been impacted in a really powerful, devastating way to then also make meaning out of that to improve a community. It helps them, it helps the company, it helps the community. Thank you so much, Gabriella. This has been so exciting. How can people find you if they wanna have more conversations with you about learning from the things that you've done? People can find me on Facebook, uh, Gabriella Malafaia. Also on Twitter, it's at uh, GSD Malafaia. So, and maybe we can chat a little bit. Great. And I'll drop those in the show notes. Are you also on LinkedIn? Yes. Yes. I'm also on LinkedIn. Yes. Okay. I'll put those in there as well. Thank you so much for making time today. Thank you to our sound editor, Dave, for making us sound amazing. Thank you to Jessica for organizing us and to all the listeners who came out and uh, are are paying attention to this. This is uh, more of an innovative space in suicide prevention specifically. So thank you for tuning in. Spread the word because... I do believe, I I see it to be true, that this is the future. This is where we're headed, especially in suicide prevention, is to onboard our workplaces to be critical partners in this effort. Uh, So in closing, open your hearts, challenge your thinking, and take action to save lives. Together, we can restore dignity and sustain a passion for living.